A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, Pediatric Infectious Disease Doc and Researcher. Happy Valentine's Day, Santosh. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, By the time this episode drops, happy Valentine's Day. I got you nothing. I know I'm loved. (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's cool. You know we love to do theme episodes for the various holidays. Most of the time, we've tended to focus, obviously, on sexually transmitted infections and a whole bunch of other things. But this year, I thought we should take a different medical approach to love. Uh, a positive one that won't gross all of our listeners out? Well, half of that. Okay. I discovered my new favorite word of the week, which is teledildonics. And don't ask me what it is, because I went and found a guest expert to help us go over all the fun stuff of the human body. So... Without further ado, let me introduce our guest expert for this week's Sexy Time episode, Dr. Holly Richmond, a somatic psychologist, certified sex therapist, licensed marriage and family therapist, founder, I think, of the Next Sex Platform, and an expert in sexual technology in a clinical setting as well. That's a lot of hats. Welcome, Dr. (laughs) Holly. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. This is, I'm really excited for this episode. So just to to clarify before we jump into all the other stuff, are you a contributor or or a founder of the Next Sex Platform? I am the founder of the Next Sex Platform. Yes. Yeah. So that was it's it's been an exciting journey with that. So that happened in 2000 late 2015 early 2016. You know, Santosh, this was a perfect excuse for me to dive into history and what would a history episode be if I didn't at least dip into the Victorian era? I knew you were going there. And I'm I'm a little excited about this too. We get to I guess kind of come full circle in this episode because we're going to start with sexual technology back in the Victorian era, but it wasn't really sex positive at that time. No, and I think we're going to come round for it being sex positive. So picture the Victorian era. You know, you have all the the heavy black coats because we hadn't changed to white coats then and very serious doctors with very big mustaches. And a woman may come into you complaining of, you know, typical problems, irritability, anxiety, sleeplessness. You've tried all your standard treatments, cocaine, opium, yelling at her, and nothing seems to work. So your next step, according to what all the history books tell us, is to diagnose her with the common female problem, hysteria. And the treatment was pelvic massage to paroxysm. 
there's so much wrong with that sentence. Well, actually, with the diagnosis to start with, and that word hysterical, and and this is why hysteria, in my viewpoint, should actually leave the English language, if it can, because they believed, no joke, that this craziness in women, oh my God, they have desire, actually stemmed from a wandering uterus. So hyster, H-Y-S-T-R, which is the root word for uterus, hysteria was the uterus wandering around the body and therefore causing these unwanted Listen, if I had internal organs wandering around my body, I'd be pretty irritable and anxious too. (laughs) There was nothing for wandering testicle. Nothing at all. Here was the solution that our Victorian doctors came up with. Originally, they had to do pelvic massage, and this had to be, of course, be performed by a trained medical professional and could be very time-consuming, taking almost up to an hour to get these women to have paroxysms, which was their fancy Victorian medical word for orgasm. So instead, we had in the the late 1800s, Dr. Granville, invented the electromechanical vibrator. But even before him, an American physician, Dr. George Taylor, in 1869, ha 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 ha, invented a steam-powered vibrator called the manipulator. <laughs> Let me describe this to you. The patient interface component was roughly the size of a dining room table, had a cutout area for a vibrating spear on which the woman would place herself, And the steam engine that powered the spear spinning was located in a separate room. Doctors didn't like this because you couldn't move it and take it with you on a house call. And also they didn't like shoveling coal into it. Thoughts of what maybe the spear was made of? I I got lost at shoveling coal and steam powered. Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, And then Dr. Granville... A little bit after that, invented the hand crank version. But here's the problem with this. These make great stories, and there was actually a movie made about this. No, um, oh, listen, we can't tell people about those kind of movies on this channel. Right? No, 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 no. It was a historical movie about the invention of the vibrator. It was sure not... Sure it was. <sighs> Damn it, Santosh. <laughs> I but... don't believe you. Holly, do you believe him? I'm. I don't know, but I'm just. I'm like stuck at the manipulator. Um. So we, you know, the sex toys today, the satisfier, the womanizer. I'm like, is there a new manipulator? Because if there's not, that's oh, I'm going to suggest. Oh, maybe that to, the to the copyright is lapsed. Oh, right. there's an even that's better one. Yeah. So oh, okay. Granville's was a hand powered <laughs> crank, and I don't think he gave it a an official name. And battery powered vibrators were actually introduced as household appliances for the explicit purpose of of sex as early as 1899, but doctors were still trying to convince patients it was worth, you know, $2 or $3 a visit to be treated by pelvic massage machines. And one of the last ones, which you can find links to pictures of all of these in the show notes, included the Chattanooga, a massage contraption that stood about five feet tall. (laughs) Come on now. Are you serious? Look at the show notes, Santosh. The Chattanooga and the Manipulator. I'm not looking at the show notes. I'm just... You just don't want me to destroy your Google search history. Well, and my daughters are in the other room and my door doesn't lock. All right. Fair point. So all of this, of course, may be apocryphal as the main person who talked about how often doctors were treating women for hysteria does acknowledge that doctors, and even in the Victorian era, knew what an orgasm was. So while they may have looked down on women's health in general, it's not like they were suddenly shocked when a woman orgasmed in front of them. So all of this is really just a fun intro to toys and devices that existed. And now let's talk about actual sex tech with our expert today. So Dr. Holly, what is teledildonics? And how is it used clinically? Wonderful questions. So, so sex tech is really any interface, any combination of sexuality and technology. So where most people's head go is porn, right? So when we're looking like porn that we're, we're seeing now on videos, not magazines, clearly wouldn't be sex tech. But more so, and really the clinical applications are apps that address sexuality. So anything from 
planning pregnancy, preventing pregnancy, STI, um, you know, resourcing for STI. But then the exciting piece of sex tech is really it's, um, you know, we were talking about it before. Toys is the word that you'll hear the most often, but that's fairly reductive. So they're really they're pleasure products or health products that that are most often focused a lot now on female sexuality. But of course, there's a lot of sex tech for men as well. This industry is valued at 30.6 billion right now in another five years in 2025, it's going to be a $50 billion industry. That's a lot of growth. Right? Mm-hmm. There's so many jokes in there. I just have to hold myself back from making. I I heard in there, Holly, that there, of course, the the focus is on the pleasure industry, largely for women. But this technology does include things like birth control as well. It does. Just you know, different ways to track um, and apps that would connect you to clinicians or clinics to find more resources. Any lots of apps around pregnancy, lots of apps around pleasure. I was just consulting on a new app for new parents on how to get their sex life back. So this is really any problem issue that you can think of within the sexual health or couples realm, You there's an app for that. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And Femtech is a subsection of sex tech, and that's where we're seeing the most growth right now. So at the Consumer Electronics Show this year, they allowed in pleasure products really for the first time. And several of my colleagues with these fantastic new vibrators or devices uh, won some awards. Couldn't be more proud of them. So let's talk about this. I took a look at some of the devices that are being brought to the Consumer Electronics Show in the coming year. And there was a lot I was surprised by, but you talked about using these devices in a clinical setting. And that's actually what I'm really interested. So I pulled out two, one that absolutely terrifies me and my distrust of robots, and another that I think sounds really interesting in terms of its clinical application. So let's talk about those and any others you think are worth bringing up. So one of the ones that's going to appear at the CES is called the auto blow AI, which is a robot that can provide 10 different kinds of fellatio with changeable speeds. And it has a final mode that utilizes machine learning to never provide the same kind of fellatio twice. Apparently, this is something we haven't seen in a sex toy to date. Tell me why I shouldn't be terrified of a machine learning to do things in and around my genitals. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. I I'm, promise I'm not going to therapize you. But like, why, why is that scary to you? Like, what about that is scary? Ooh, now I'm curious. I don't trust robots. I don't trust AI. I've seen too many Terminator (laughs) movies. I've seen too many movies where programming goes wrong. And to bring it into such an intimate part of our lives, something that has literally no capacity for emotion, sounds deeply concerning. I don't even trust a Roomba Um, in my place. (laughs) (laughs) Holly, I'll take it one step further. There is an internet conspiracy on uh, about the Terminators that they were and are sex bots gone rogue. Mm -hmm. The reason for this being is if you were creating like a killing machine, you know, if if you were putting together something to just kill a bunch of living creatures, you would never take the trouble to make it look anything vaguely humanoid. Because there's a lot about, you know, human anatomy and everything, especially where we keep our our head right above this really delicate Mm -hmm. neck. So there's no reason to do that unless they were built like human shaped in the first place. And the most logical point that, you know, the internet goes to is, oh, they were sex bots and then they went rogue. So I think it's fair to say that Josh has, having watched as many movies as he has, a fair kind of fear. Yeah, yeah. No, and I'm really, <laughs> um, I'm curious, but I get it. So I think the the fear I hear most often with sex tech is it's going to replace humans. So people are going to stop having sex with each other, which means, uh, I, you know, 
on the one hand, we're going to have less babies, which I don't think there's a, a huge problem with that. Um, but on the other hand, we're going to experience less connection, feel less empathy. Uh, millennials are having less sex than any generation in recorded history. So to some extent, we can't, we can't say, oh, that's not true. We're going to stop having less sex because millennials are, are really the first generation who has been so integrated in, into the tech space with sexuality and relationships. Um, why you shouldn't be a, afraid of the AI. This one's the um, Autoblow AI. Name Great name. Yeah, it is. Terrifying product. Okay. Everything <laughs> I've experienced with teledildonics, which I'm going to explain in a minute, in any kind of smart sex toys, they aren't as good as you think they should be. Um, I'm sure this feels amazing, but it's not never going to replace a human mouth. You would definitely be able to tell that you were using a machine versus having sex with someone in real life. There is no way this machine is going to replace people, but it's for pleasure. Again, so if we're being totally sex positive, and in my view, sex positivity is all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. And I don't like to pathologize any other kind of sex, and that includes things with sex tech. So if we stick to that true sex positive mission, this this AI blowjob, the auto blow, it's it's really okay, and it's not a threat. It's just an addition okay. to, not a replacement right. for. So. I'm going to deviate briefly and and ask, how does technology, you know, you started to talk about how it encourages our sex lives. How does technology complicate and or encourage our sex lives? Mm -hmm. And a couple examples, you know, Santosh gave the Terminator theory, but for a more recent pop culture reference, you have Westworld, where people started using these devices just for mm -hmm. pleasure. And then as soon as the robots gained some kind of sentience, they got mad about that. Or even to go even further back into history, Demolition Man. For those of you who've seen... <laughs> uh, I knew you were going to bring up Demolition Man. Darn right Man. you yeah. did. Um, <laughs> good, good. For those of you who yeah, haven't I'm, seen I'm the movie, uh, Sylvester Stallone is brought, forward as, is brought forward from our time into 2054. And he meets up with Sandra Bullock. And she invites him after a particularly exciting action sequence to come back to her place and have sex. Sylvester Stallone is thrilled about this. They both get in bathrobes, sit in her room, and then put on helmets. And he's massively confused by this idea. He's like, I thought we were going to have sex. And Sandra Bullock has this adorable response. She's like, ew, fluid exchange? That's so 20th century. To be very fair in that movie, something had happened with human culture where they didn't want any contact whatsoever because they didn't even shake hands or even high five. They would air five. Right. So is that the world that we're heading to with this technology? So how do you think, you know, these I... different views accurately or inaccurately portray teledildonics? Yeah, so very inaccurately at this point. Um, the Westworld scenario, we are decades and decades and decades away from that happening. Um, so let's start with, with teledildonics. Teledildonics are smart devices, meaning they use Bluetooth or Wi-Fi to connect to each other. These are great products for partners that live across the world from each other or who travel a lot because you can have a masturbation, like a sleeve device for the guys. A woman can have a vibrator. You can link these up through your app and control each other's pleasure from anywhere in the world. So this is really, it's hard to argue with how that could be a bad thing, except I know we're going to get into the security aspects of it. So that's teledildonics, really anything that can be linked via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. Now, AI, which is what you're talking about with Westworld, with the sex bots, that is a synthetic companion. So uh, a life-sized looking human who has been imbued with, with AI so that they can learn, right? So they can ask questions, they learn who you are, so they can reply back in ways that fit your profile, favorite color, favorite food, what you like to do. And all they can do at this point is sit there and stare kind of in the same direction. Sometimes their head can move a little bit, but they're not getting up and walking by a long shot. You mentioned they're all Bluetooth which mm -hmm. is not always the most secure means. How is your security or privacy protected with these devices? You have a couple who's across the world and 
and trying mm-hmm. to be intimate with these aids, how do you stop somebody else from hacking into the device or protect your preferences, whatever they may be? What steps are being taken? Yeah, yeah. So you want to look for a secure API, which is a secure application programming interface. And there's really been no references to any single person hacking into a sex toy device that wasn't that wasn't a professional hacker or they weren't doing this at a trade show. But two things you can definitely do, turn your sex toy off completely when you're not using it and don't name it my sex toy right? Like name it something very strange. So if anybody is in your network, that they would have a hard time finding your sex toy. They would have to be pretty close to you to be able to hack in. And what they would know is that it was on or off, maybe what mode it was in, but there, it would be really hard for them to take control of it. Does that make sense? Okay. So basically don't share personal information when creating a profile for these toys. Right. And this is really, you know, and we're in the age of Internet of Things. This is not a unique problem with sex toys, right? This is if you have that Wi-Fi enabled crockpot that you can turn on with your phone, you know, when you wanted to start cooking your dinner and that kind of a thing. This is this is the identical problem with any electronics that are connected to the. I will back off from my innate fear of robots for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least for the sake of this podcast. Oh, yeah. No, it's coming back. Don't you worry. But but one of the other really interesting uh, devices that I saw is coming up at CES is called the O-Nut, which addresses Mm -hmm. the issue of painful sex. And it's a stackable set of silicone rings to control depth of penetration. Is this the kind of thing that you might be able to use clinically or what other devices, what are some clinical uses you can think of for these devices outside of pure pleasure? Right, right. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. So this is a um, health device. So reduces painful sex. Um, I have another uh, friend, colleague who has created a, it's called private pack. So it like, it's, it's almost like an ice pack or a heating pack, but designed specifically for the genitals. There's a lot of work being done around erectile dysfunction. So again, this is just not about pleasure. It's about health as well. And really solving problems that, that we haven't looked at before. And, and again, in this area, like the, that femtech market is really leading the charge. Now, when you told me that you were a sex therapist and sex tech consultant, I assumed that those at least diverged a little bit. But prior to the recording, you mentioned that you had actually done sex therapy on a sex spot. Can you go a little or with using a, a sex spot? Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we we haven't talked about, um, so those two worlds do combine. So I was the first woman to write a script in VR porn. It was kind of called edutainment um, that was shot in VR. So this was something that people could watch that would really help with female pleasure. But instead of just watching this film, it's experiential, right? Because it's in virtual reality. So that was a completely women-led project. Um, But again, there's my clinical world and the sex tech world colliding. And then about this time last year, I got to work with Harmony, who is Abyss Creations AI sex doll. Um, And we set up a weekend of workshops where we called in a few of my clients. Um, These were male adult virgins. So in their 30s to 40s, who obviously had never had sex before. And there's either, um, usually it's just pronounced social anxiety. Sometimes there's spectrum disorders or other kind of um, psychological disorder that's, you know, that's, that shows up more as anxiety. Um, and I got to use Harmony, this AI sex bot, to work with the client. So she learned what he liked. He got to learn how to talk to a woman. And I'm doing my little quotation marks right now. He got to really touch a woman for the first time. This one client, he had never even held a woman's hand. So you can imagine being in your 30s and just having no experience whatsoever. He had tried dating. It had gone horribly. So he was game. And um, we tried using Harmony and he had a fantastic experience. And did that ease his social anxiety interacting with people uh, following the session or 
without going into private exactly. you know, medical yeah. records. For sure. And, sure, and sure. that's the whole point of this. Again, it's not a replacement for it. It's an addition to. So this is just a learning tool. And for me, I think, you know, this kinesthetic learning, learning experientially helps people so much more than just me talking to them or showing them a video or having them read a book. So this, like, it, it just um, accelerates that learning curve. And for him, it was, it just gave him that little bit of confidence that he needed. He's like, oh, I hear, have some competence around this. And then that next step is mastery. So yeah, I just, we, he doesn't own Harmony. Um, she's super expensive, but I've been working with him somewhat on using technology, but really now we're just more in the space of getting him out on dates and um, learning to talk to women and connect intimately. With so them. you mentioned this kinesthesiology and touch. Let's, let's dive into a little mm -hmm. bit of just foundational. What is sex therapy? Uh, and in, in the context of your specialty, somatic therapy, how is it done? Where is it done? Mm -hmm. You know, to somebody who's never heard of this outside of the show. Right. And and that's a lot of people. So what I do, what any sex therapist does, they are a licensed therapist, like a licensed marriage, marriage and family therapist or a psychologist. So that is the foundation, just like anyone else who's going into cognitive behavioral therapy or psychoanalysis, we have the exact same training. We just have another 350 hours at the start of additional sex therapy training. And then of course there's continuing education every year that we have to do on top of this. For me, it just didn't make sense to do sex therapy purely through a emotional or cognitive realm. Like we have sex with our bodies. So why wouldn't I understand the body, you know, to the degree I can. And I use that in my practice, but to specifically answer your question, I have an office just like any other sex therapist would And I work almost entirely virtually at this point. So I'm really putting my money where my mouth is um, and think technology can be a help to us in emotional regulation, sexuality, and that, that kind of the old school model of having to go see a therapist in person every week just doesn't work that well for everybody today. We just, we travel too much. There's, you know, people live all over. So I do have an office in New York, but I work mostly How does virtually. one get continuing education and sex therapy? It doesn't seem like it's a widely spread field. Yeah, no, no, for sure. So there's ASECT, the American Association of Sexuality Counselors, Educators, and Therapists. It's a pretty big organization, but that's, if you're going to be certified in this, in the States, that's really where you have to go. Totally legit organization. We have a conference every year, um, four days, and we go and just do workshop after workshop after workshop. On what? What are the continuing it? Like I have continuing education classes on, say, the coronavirus or updates in heart failure. What kind of topics are addressed at uh, sex therapy? Conferences? Yeah. So it's like uh, psychopharmacology, you know, what, what we're using in um, sexuality disorders, new ways to work with couples, new treatments for erectile dysfunction, how to address pain during sex. Uh, what is sex tech? Um, I taught last year on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault, everything, um, tantra, fetishes, everything you can imagine is there. Wow. And uh, so from my standpoint, I, I'm always fascinated about how we learn what we learn. Um, mm -hmm. In sex therapy, there must be a, a kind of a very difficult ethical line to tread mm -hmm. when you're trying to advance the field. So from your standpoint and the standpoint of researchers in your field, what are some of the barriers that you guys have to overcome and What, what have we been able to kind of push through in recent times, especially with the use of technology and how we've gained more knowledge in this field? Right. That's a great question. So, so the barrier for us, for me, is touch, quite literally. I cannot touch anyone oh. legally, ethically. And as a sex therapist, that puts you in a little bit of a bind, right? Because again, the body is essential. It's, it's like the, the foundation a lot of times for, for what the issue is. So that means I have to give homework almost weekly um, and trust my clients to go home and do it. Um, of course, I, I do, you know, assign books and assign videos, but it's really that hands-on homework, whether it's with themselves or with a partner 
that that moves them forward. Now, outside of that, if I see that the problem is bigger than something that they can tackle on their own with homework that I give them, I will refer them to a sexological body worker or a surrogate partner therapist. Oh, okay. So, and, and a surrogate partner may be someone who's, uh, or sorry, a, a, a sexual surrogate is someone who's trained in sex therapy, but using touch. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So they have their own training. This is a bit of a gray area legally. I'm going to be completely honest. Um, so it's it's tough. I wish we could get to a place where I could openly and easily send people to surrogate partner therapists because literally they're trained to help people learn how to have sex, right? So again, mm -hmm. this is your adult virgin. This is someone on the spectrum. This is someone with a physical disability where they just haven't ever been able to enjoy the kind of sex that they want to have. So a surrogate partner therapist literally will take them by a week by week protocol, teaching them how to have sex. Sexological body worker is more, it's still very hands-on, but more erotically or sensually based uh, on pleasure, not so much on function. I see. So I can yeah. imagine then if ethically you're not supposed to touch your patients, um, mm -hmm. but you know, you, there is sexual surrogacy. I guess before the advent of the kinds of technology that you're talking about, there really wasn't an alternative. There wasn't a middle area. So this has really been a gift to your field. It is. It is the only middle area that I can think of, um, you know, since the, the maybe the 80s or the 90s would be videos. So, you know, oh, there were VHS. Yeah. Yeah. So vid, uh, some sex therapists were making, you know, videos and I'm sure you can perfectly picture these like the 80 kind of porn style <laughs> videos, but, but again, more educational, sure. more educational, but still you're watching, you're not experiencing, right? Uh, well, absolutely true. I, I do want to make one pitch, which is, uh, it's going to sound a little bit weird, but uh, Josh, I think you can attest to this too. I guess Pornhub at the other like popular sex websites, they actually do have genuinely like educational videos on there, which have been shown to be somewhat helpful in the they the do public. they do, but I mean then you get to a point where all sex education is coming, however legitimately, from a porn site, and there's a large population or subset of the population that's probably not, shall we say, thrilled about that idea. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad it's there. I'm glad the educational component is there, but most people that are going on are not going to that part of the, the website. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's, it's not the big draw okay. um, as, as a, for instance, they also have, what was it, Josh? Uh, they had a, something about oh, the bees. save the bees. They had, they had save the bees. They had, Porn stars voice videos of bees pollinating flowers. And if you watched them, they would. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Donate to some conservation organization. Uh, yeah. They do a lot <laughs> of these fun little stunts and the data they collect is pretty impressive. So it's it's not the yeah. biggest draw, but they're trying to do some good out there, which is kind of impressive. I'm sorry, it I just is. got off on a weird tangent. I really no. apologize. It's really but, impressive. And if the message would be, if you're a teenager, go to this part of ViewPorn or Pornhub, that I would be happy with that. Um, I think we need to have sex education in schools, but that's a whole nother podcast. So let's kind of 
tangentially move to the idea of fetishes. There are there are kinds of sex that people have that fall in and out of favor, and there are certain dangers associated with them that may not be touched on if you're only watching it in a fantasy-type setting on a video. So let's talk a little bit about things like BDSM and the various kinks. So what, as a sex therapist, I'm sure you come across a lot of different interests. What fetishes are trending mm-hmm. in, in 2019, 2020? And how would you recommend that people kind of explore those interests safely? Yeah, absolutely. So I think since Fifty Shades of Grey came out, what was that? I don't know, three or four years ago now, BDSM has really, it's it's found its space and pop culture. So that's definitely there. A subset of that though is um, cuckolding. And do you all know what that is? That's definitely been trending lately. Why don't we explain it for anybody who may not be familiar with the terms and can't look at Google <laughs> for fear of their history? Um, okay, I'm going to do do my best with this. So, so cuckolding is yeah. typically... Um, there's a man and a woman in a relationship, and typically the man likes to see his wife get <laughs> fucked by another man. And the real, the, the true cuckolding piece of this, and he likes to be demeaned while they're having sex. So you've heard of hot wifing or wife swapping, where it's just oh. like, you know, couples, like swinging couples or hot wifing is, would be a guy watching his wife have sex with another man. Cuckolding is there's a, me- a demeaning element to it. So the guy would like to hear how his wife is getting fucked and why that guy is better at it and that he has a bigger penis, blah, blah, blah. And this is something that's become more popular in in recent history that you've noticed. Yes, for sure. Um, The other things that are trending are stepmom, stepbrother, stepsister. um, Yeah, the familial stuff. That's that's very strange to me. Um, I know it's a completely different conversation, but I'd love to hear your thoughts someday about how, you know, it, it's kind of the life imitating art stuff. Like it's how much of this is something started to trend a little bit on the internet and then became popular versus, you know, if it actually grew organically from the audience's interest. And I'm, yeah. I'm very curious about how that. Yeah, how did we get from a very taboo topic in in sex to something that is presumably plastered all over the internet now? Yeah, it it is. Um, I'm hoping it was the former that some videos were out there and it caught on because it is so taboo. Like that's my feeling about the familial piece. Um, I. Maybe it's just because I don't like to think it's happening. I don't see it. It doesn't, it's not showing up in my office. I can a hundred percent say that. I think it is so taboo. And when you think about it, our taboos are getting fewer and fewer, right? The more sex positive we get, the more we learn, the more we have access to our taboo pool is shrinking. So I think this is one that we can hold on to fairly firmly and porn is taking it and running because it just, people love to be naughty and that's super naughty. Okay. Right. Let's talk a little bit about some things with safety. As you mentioned, BDSM became a big issue after Fifty Shades of Grey was released, and it sparked a whole lot of interest. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but whips and chains excite me kind of thing. But there's a lot of ways that you could do some permanent damage to your partner if you're just leaping into this world in terms of tying people up or uh, cuffing them for too long or using clamps. Is this the kind of thing that you've ever had to explain to people or that you've come across? Yes, yes, for sure. So this is definitely a category of sex therapy is working with kinks and fetishes. Um, and it, really BDSM is the safest kind of sex you can have. So I want your listeners to hear that loud and clear. If you are doing this correctly, there is no safer sex that you could be having because people in this world are so communicative and on point about what they're doing. So everything is a hundred percent consent based and you almost don't make another step unless you check out that that step is okay. And I don't think for people just hooking up that that's the case. Okay. So let's, let's dive a little bit in to some of this BDSM aspects that come through it. So you mentioned consent. Mm-hmm. Usually it's, it, from what I understand, it's negotiated ahead of time. And as you said, this is not a, a one night stand sort of 
relationship, consent is ongoing, what's okay to do, what's not okay to do, and how do you change your mind mid-scene without sort of losing that intimacy? Maybe somebody was enjoying something and then all of a sudden they're not. How do you communicate that if, say, you know, somebody has a gag in their mouth and they can't tell you they don't want to do something anymore? Right, right. So that needs to be negotiated beforehand as well. Okay, I'm going to have a ball gag in my mouth. I'm not going to be able to tell you to stop. So let's have some kind of physical signal that I am capable of doing that lets you know that I've had enough. Um, and just for your listeners too, your your safe word should never be stop or no, because that's often part of the scene. Like playing with power. It's all about playing with power. A lot of people who who choose to participate in BDSM, there's no sex at all. There's no penetration. Like this is all happening in the mind. This involves an, yeah. kind of an interplay between, I guess, how it makes you feel above the neck, you know, in, in your headspace, right. even more so than the physical sensation. Or are, are the two kind of equally? I'm going to say different for every person. You know, every person who plays in the space has a different need or desire from it. Again, um, I have several clients who don't have sex at all. It's, it's not about that. It's just about the I power see. exchange. So I spoke to a couple people yeah. in the BDSM community and I asked them these kinds of questions. I'm like, you know, how, how do you negotiate this ongoing consent in the heat of the moment? And they said they use what's called a traffic light system, because sometimes you may not remember what safe word you negotiated on. So they simply say, you know, red, yellow, green with, because those are all very simple mm -hmm. words to remember. Yellow meaning slow down, but okay. Green obviously meaning full steam ahead. And just saying the word red is enough to bring an instant stop. Uh, and they talked a little bit about something called subspace. Uh, are you familiar with what that is? Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Um, and, and to me, just like the sex therapy world, there's two sides of that. There's the physiological and the psychological. So I, I can probably go into a little bit of the physiological, but why don't you tell us what psychological subspace is? This is excitement, pleasure, um, embodiment. It's, it's what a person who is the submissive steps into it's being in the zone it's like it's what they crave it's um all the pressures off right a lot of a lot of my clients who are submissives are very high powered and have a lot of decisions to make in their real life so stepping into the subspace really lets them out lets them off the hook so they don't have to make any decisions they are not in control at all and they just talk about it being the most freeing um, kind of like solid home experience that they can get in their waking lives. Does that like, am I explaining that correctly? Okay. You know I mean, that's, oh. that's interesting. So it's complete surrender. Somebody who spends all day making yeah. stressful decisions gets to say, you know what? I'm done. Somebody else do the thinking mm -hmm. for me. That's, I could see where that would be free. So psychologically, you almost kind of zone out. Um, so a subspace, it's people describe it like a, a zone, um, but you're not numb, you're present. As a, for instance, with um, addiction mm -hmm. psychology, where you're trying to withdraw from the stimuli around you, you're still trying to involve yourself in the experience, but not bear or shoulder the kind of the responsibility of choosing you know, what we need to do. I mean, this is, this is kind of like, I mean, taking it out of a sexual context. This is like when you say, okay, I want to go out tonight, uh, but I don't want to pick the bar where to eat or this kind of a thing. I just want someone to pick a really good restaurant and a really good club and I'm going to come along for right. the ride. Right. And again, like, um, I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, I'm going to have people listening to this and tell me that I'm wrong. Subspace is different for everyone. Okay. I'm just describing, I think it makes me nervous just because I have a trauma informed lens. If you are totally checked out oh. and disassociated, like dissociated that, that always like that, you know, um, that's just like a little bit of a red flag to me, but for some people in a subspace, mm. they could navigate that area. But I feel like for most, it's just, this pleasant place of embodiment, but they're not totally numb, but they're definitely not like turned on. They turned on, I mean, like having to be in control, having to make any decisions um, or being super aware. They're just, so, they just get to be present. Let's, 
let me go into this from yeah. a physiological yeah, standpoint, so, and and then we can circle back to your your experience with trauma. Doctor Holly said, "Subspace doesn't always happen. It may happen for some submissives and not others. It sounds like it's a little bit of a runner's high, where you have loss of time, less sensation of pain, decreased mental clarity, a loss of coordination. Mm-hmm. So, if you're receiving a, a spanking or tied up." Even though psychologically you may be turned on, your body could still interpret that as trauma and kick off the biological stress responses of fight or flight. So, you know, you get a a swift paddle or something to the ass and your body is going to tense up, put on high alert. Your adrenal cortex is going to release adrenaline, adrenaline, cortisol is going to go up. And this has been shown in studies where they actually have gone in, in in one of my favorite journals, the Journal of Sexual Medicine, has done a few studies on MRIs and measuring hormones. And it shows that cortisol does go up during these kinds of scenes, which is our stress hormone, but does tend to trail off after a scene mm-hmm. ends. So the reason that your body's doing that is adrenaline provides focus and energy. So you can come up with a plan for how you want to react next. While cortisol gets your body ready to repair tissues, which is useful in times of emergency. And if you're into, I guess, more impactful play, probably useful in BDSM as well. This is then followed by your thyroid gland will regulate increasing your heart rate, your appetite being decreased. And I heard from many of the BDSM people I spoke to that they often end scenes feeling incredibly hungry or thirsty. There's also been some limited studies. There's not a lot of work or research on this, unfortunately, that your body releases some endogenous opioids known as encephalins that may reduce the sensation of pain. Uh, This may be happening during non-BDSM sex as well. But as I said, there's such limited research on these areas. You came from originally a trauma background in sex therapy. That that was your entry into the field. What differences have you noticed aside from the obvious psychological ones between people who actively seek this out for pleasure versus people who maybe had this thrust upon them and are recovering from it? Right. So we never, we never want to get in a space of reenactment. And this is, um, I don't want to take this off into another direction, but I definitely, I have several, several clients who are into this BDSM world or fetish space where their first sexual experiences were of this nature and they were not consensual. So what we want is to empower them and, um, help them. You can't get rid of a fetish. I can't, you know, tell you how many times people call me and like, I have this fetish. I want you to get it gone. Um, I can't do that, but I can help people choose how to use it differently. So it's not controlling them, but they're controlling it. They decide when they put it in the closet, when they pull it out. So you never want this to come from a place of reenacting the trauma to try to come out with a different outcome. Right. And that's what a lot of people who are, who, who have experienced sexual trauma do. Where is empowered play is I'm choosing to do this. It's about my pleasure and it's about connection with my partner or partners or just connection with myself. When you're talking about some of these connections, that you bring up a great point. How do you help your clients explore fetishes when maybe partners have vastly different views? For example, let's say one person is coming from this this world where maybe they've had a traumatic experience and another partner he wants to explore these kinds of things that could be triggering, or even in a less thing, maybe somebody's just really into mm-hmm. one particular aspect of kink and somebody else finds that uh, unappealing. How do you stop either kink shaming or how do you bring people together when they may have very, very opposing views on a particular fetish? Yeah, you just nailed it. This is so common and something I see all the time. This is, it just starts with communication. And of course it starts with consent too. So it would be one partner asking, are you open to trying this and getting a yes, no, or a maybe really finding out what the boundaries are. And if the boundaries are hard for the person that doesn't want to participate, what kind of latitude does the person who really needs this, what, what can they have? So can they fantasize about this in their head? Can they watch porn about it? Can they 
write stories about it? Do they have openness in the relationship where they could go visit a dungeon once a month? Like that's really, so that's, you know, up to every couple couple to navigate. Did you say visit a dungeon? <laughs> Josh, this yes. is not can you, D. Can, she, she can't talk to us about D20s and magical spells. For the <laughs> audience. For the audience. Who may not, who may not know. What is a dungeon? It definitely has nothing <laughs> to do with dragons. Unless that's your thing, um, which go for it. Um, a dungeon is a play space. So you will find them in big cities, tons of them in San Francisco for sure. But you'll you'll find them in large urban areas and probably other places as well, where people in the BDSM community can join to come and play for parties or they can rent dungeon spaces on an individual hour by hour basis. So before we get into a couple of the resources, I do want to comment on some things that I learned while researching this. I know that clamps uh, on various body parts can be a, for lack of a better word, titillating part of sexual play. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I came across is that uh, there's a lot of nerve endings in nipples and genitals Um, for men and women, obviously, if you're using clamps, don't leave them on for an undefined period of time because that can lead to permanent nerve damage. What it shouldn't be on from the best studies I could find, no more than about 10 to 15 minutes max, and then objects, you know, and then whoever, whatever you have it on needs a break. Similarly, for people who are into rope tying, there's a whole large part of this that's all about tying people up you can't just tie a regular knot like you're tying your shoe because that can cut off blood flow and cause a a tourniquet like effect so in these scenes where people may be tied up for extended periods you should use a correct kind of tie it's called a, a single column tie and there's ways to do it so for somebody interested in say maybe exploring this world who who doesn't know how to do this in a safe way and they want to learn, what kind of resources would you send them to? Where could they learn about, you know, what's safe, what isn't safe if they want to explore this world? Right. Fat Life is really my favorite. Um, and there's some great books out there as well. Um, Playing Well with Others. Uh, what's the other one I was thinking of? Uh, the Ethical Slut gets into this area a little bit. But if you just, if you go on Amazon and look BDSM, um, play space, you will, you will find some great resources, but FetLife is really a great source for information and finding partners and parties. Like if you want to start with, you're like, Oh, I'm not sure I really want to do this in person on my own, but I'm curious, what if I go to a party and just watch? Okay. And are there any safety tips for maybe going to these parties? Obviously you're heading somewhere where there could be a lot of naked people, none of who, you know, And there could be safety issues for people who haven't been in this world before. What steps should they take? So the first one is to know your triggers and know your boundaries. So when I say know your triggers, you guys probably know what I mean. But like, were you at one point tied up and that was traumatic for you? Um, Is there anything in your past that would make anything that you could encounter at a party really, um, you know, hyper arousing for you, not in a good way as in a, you dissociate or have a panic attack. So really know, know your triggers and know your boundaries. Um, these parties are really, it is so consensual. I'm not worried about safety in a consent way at all. It's just knowing yourself. Um, so some of the ones you, you mentioned FetLife, which is short for fetish life Mm -hmm. and does have a lot of different discussion groups. As best I can tell, it looks like almost a combination of Facebook and Reddit for people with sexual kinks. If you're looking for a dungeon, dragons or otherwise, and maybe you, you're you not sure where <laughs> to find them in your city, there's a website called Kink B&B where people rent oh, out... Are you kidding me? They just ripped off Airbnb and turned it into Kink B&B? And apparently were involved <laughs> with a lawsuit yeah. about that, so oh. now they offer their services... <laughs> So now they offer these services for free instead of charging a membership. But it does have, you can rent out somebody's place for the explicit purpose. They're like, we know you're going to have sex here. That's okay. As opposed to, I guess, Airbnb, where it's 
Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Who knows? Um, <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask while I had you here, Holly. It, so we're, you know, medical professionals. If we're in the fields of psychology or, you know, I, I'm a pediatrician. And so we talk about adolescent medicine as well uh, or, or adult medicine, nursing, any of those kinds of things. I know I, I can be very frank in saying that teaching about sex and sexuality in med school is poor at best. So it's it's kind of one of the last, you know, things that we think about when we do anatomy and physiology and everything else. So when we're coming into practice, um, I, I know a lot of the time right now, your primary doctor or your GP is not always who a person will come to when they're having an issue with sex or sexuality. Um, from our standpoint as doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals, um, if we're outside of your field in sex therapy, how can we better educate ourselves? What are the best resources to go to so that we can learn how to talk to our patients and where to refer them when we need expertise? What do you most yeah. wish we would do? <laughs> well, okay. So maybe this is something the three of us tackle. Someone needs to rewrite that curriculum for med school, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> On sex education. Um, I have a friend that's doing that in, in the private school section for younger kids. But it needs to start there. Um, what else? Uh, I think just for the most part, expanding the conversation. Um, do you guys feel comfortable asking your patients, how is your sex life? Are you having any pain during sex? Are you able to orgasm? I think those questions need to be happening more. I have a feeling, you know, from what I hear from my clients, urologists and OBGYNs get more of those questions. But I would oh, yeah. say, I think the latest statistic is t only 20% of OBs or urologists ask their patients anything about their sexual health. So good, oh. good resources to go to. ASECT, again, um, all kinds of information there linking to the medical community, the psychologist community, the counselor community, and the educator community. So again, AASECT.org. Um, there's some great, you know, uh, web-based information like OMG Yes is a great one on um, really focused on female pleasure. I love Planned Parenthood. I think they're doing a great job of putting information out. Um, so it really, it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for information on pain during sex, that's one thing. If you're looking on how do I have an orgasm, like that's a different conversation. And I, I want to just briefly say that OMG Yes website, I look up and that has published research. Uh, and now it focuses mostly on women's pleasure, but they have a lot of sexual research. The only thing is like any journal, they charge a membership fee for access to that research. Uh, which is a little frustrating to put it behind a paywall. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, but if you remember some of those femtech sites that I were telling you was telling you about that are, are creating pleasure products, mostly for women, they do now have extensive blogs. And I think blogs is, again, a bit reductive because they do. They offer research. They offer, you know, different takes on issues that women are having from childbirth to sex after childbirth, pain during sex, um, full body orgasms, really anything so that you can think of. One of the other things I, I loved about a lot of the kink world is they constantly talk about something called aftercare. Can you explain to us what that is? Aftercare is something I wish everybody would do after they have sex, whether it's with themselves or with a partner. But aftercare is really this concept of debriefing after the experience is over. So it's checking in with each other um, physiologically and emotionally. How are you feeling? Is there anything that was triggering? What do you wish I did less of? What do you wish I did more of? Um, I'm curious about your experience. It's really just saving time, the sacred space to be with each other. So it's really, it's part of the sexual experience. I shouldn't have said after the experience because it is absolutely part of the experience. And it's just open communication, honesty, and transparency about how they are and how the experience okay. was for them. So given, a, we've covered a lot of ground today. When in your estimation should somebody seek sex therapy? So what, what constitutes a need to visit a professional as opposed to looking something up online or a casual curiosity? What, what delineates the line between 
you know, maybe you could be best helped by a visit with someone in your field. Yeah. I mean, I would say most of my clients, of course, go to Google and start researching with whatever the issue is. But you, you will know if that's not enough. Um, if, if there's something that's getting in the way of your everyday or almost everyday happiness, fulfillment, pleasure, that's when you need to talk to someone. And I would say specifically if this is shame-based, if you feel like you are holding a secret about some aspect of your relational or sexual health, that's when you want to go see a therapist because obviously we are bound by laws of confidentiality. We can't tell anyone. And if you're seeing a sex therapist in particular, one that's certified, I know you're going to get that sex positive research-based perspective. Okay. Now, one of the first ways I found out about you was through this next sex platform, which you're the founder of. Tell me a little bit more about that. And you're working on a book on sexual technology and this integration as well. Yeah. So let's let's hear about you, Dr. Richmond. Oh, gosh. Um, this, the, my interest in sex tech really came because of my somatic leaning. Um, I am not a technophile. I'm not particularly interested in technology other than I want it to do what I want it to do. Uh, but I was literally sitting on the couch uh, maybe four or five years ago now, and I just saw a program on virtual reality and a like a light bulb went off. And I thought this is going to change everything for sex and how I can teach and how people can learn and experience. Because again, it's, it's this kinesthetic learning is this experiential instead of watching, instead of hearing, instead of listening to me. Um, and that all happens somatically, right? So I just, I feel like technology became a tool for me, a, a somatic tool that I could use to help people experience better, healthier sexuality. Okay. And then this turned into the, the next sex platform. What can people find if they go there? Yeah. So research articles on, on the latest and greatest in sex tech. So who I think is doing great work, how virtual reality can be helpful, how VR combined with teledildonics might be helpful, everything you could want to know about synthetic companions and AI sex bots. Um, but really leaning more towards the educational piece, um, somewhat in the, in the pleasure space too, but, um, kind of normalizing sex tech because what I came to is technology is obviously not going anywhere. We know, like I said before, millennials are having less sex than any generation in history, but I also don't want to pathologize technology. Um, and there's really no point to that anyway. So how can we use it in the healthiest okay. way possible? And any parting thoughts for us? And thank you so much for, you know, really exploring this world that so rarely do we as medical professionals truly get to discuss with our patients. So hopefully everybody listening learned something today or somewhere they can go to better learn. What's the one kind of parting thought that you would want everybody to take away from this? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. Um, probably this piece of sex positivity. I have a feeling your listeners heard things that they haven't heard before and in some ways are probably a little bit jarring, but if we can hold that sex positive mantra in your head, all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. And again, not pathologize people's choices around using technology in their sexuality or choosing to use kink or fetish in their sexuality. I just think um, it's going to be a happier, okay. more pleasure-filled okay. world. After all, even the demolition man himself <laughs> came around eventually to the use of VR. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I'm so happy I got to cover Terminators and Victorian uh, era and learn a whole bunch of new stuff today. I'm very yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah. If we had had the time, we had gone back to Egyptian technology oh, and sex tech you would have, you know, hit all your fun points. Yeah. Oh, there's a whole temple in Karnak that just has, you know, giant uh, penises literally in hieroglyphics across the walls. And it is some of the earliest medical writings. But that's a story for another episode. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us with your expertise, Dr. Holly Richmond. If people are interested in learning more about you or what you do, where can they find you online? 
Right. So it's um, my website is drhollyrichmond.com and that's D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. And that will link you to my next sex website, but you can also find me there, N-E-X-T dash sex.com. Um, but they link back and forth to each other. And on all the social things, it's Dr. Holly Richmond, just Dr. Holly Richmond. Wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you listening, our guys, gals, and binary pals, as always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to resources used to research this episode. And until next time, always happy travels. Hi, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.